again, this may not be part of your research. I'm actually just talking to, to Stephen Cotler, the person uh, who obviously is a brilliant man with a great autonomous research. But what I'm really interested in is when you look at that, Steve, when you see those things and we see the, the powers that be, if you will, you know, old white men in charge of everything that has power and this rise of the authoritarian guy. And again, that polarity, which is, you know, we need to be more global. And yet we've got these tribal leaders, the authoritarian dictatorial leaders that, that is not, you know, people can say that about Trump, but Trump is certainly not alone. We've got the tropical Trump in Brazil. We've got Boris Johnson coming up in the UK. We've seen it in Hungary. We've seen the rise of the right in, in many countries around the world that is authoritarian. And to me, it's not a polarity, by the way. To me, it's a circle. And what I mean by that is that if this extreme left of, you know, oh, you know, we're, we're wounded by everybody and we're victims, then victims need heroes. <laughs> That's the polarity. They, they need heroes. And so that rises these authoritarians do you think i mean i used to i remember back in 19 uh when was uh when, when was uh reagan and gorbachev when was that was that 80s in the 80s i remember the first time i took mdma and thinking oh my god they should put this in the water for when those two meet <laughs> right because i wanted this experience of them being able to have compassion and empathy for each other. And, and so when you talk about putting on the VR goggles or those kinds of things, do you think that we're even going to that direction for, for say the, the leaders of the world, for say the UN members, for, for the Trumps or for the whoever's of the world to, to have that? I mean, it seems like as they raise in power, the pull, the, you know, as the saying goes, absolute power, absolute corruption. So what's your thoughts on that as a, you know, as a, just as a guy? What, I, I, it's so far from my lane. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I, I, it's just, it's honestly not what I do. And what I mean by that is, and I, so I'm not going to answer the question, but I'm going to tell you why I'm not answering the question, oh. which is, I only get involved in problems that I can solve. If I'm not going to solve the problem, I'm not getting involved. So mm -hmm. I have problems that I'm trying to solve. I am trying to decode the bi neurobiology of peak performance and train as many people up as I possibly can, and preferably so that they can, you know, harness environmental technologies and help us stave off climate change and save animals, right? That is essentially the problems I'm trying to solve. I'm trying to save animals, plants, and ecosystems. And I'm trying to train up people in flow so they could take advantage of exponential technology and help me solve those problems. That's, those are the problems I'm here to fight. Everything else, I'm literally just not qualified to talk about it. I'm just, it's not, I mean, I can be speculative, I can be whatever, but I don't, like politics is really outside of what I do. Yeah. Not best use to my time. Best use to my no, time. No, and I totally understand that. And for, because for me, it's not, you know, people say, well, you're speaking about politics. And I go, yeah, I'm really not. I'm really not. I am talking about psychology. 
it, but in the context of a leader, in the context of leadership, in the context of being a leader. And for me, leadership is, is, is about high performance. And it's not about, uh, about being a politician. It, it's about leadership is about influence. And you are a leader because you influence and you are influencing influencers. You are making that, that shift. So that's actually where my question is actually coming from is, uh, you know, I wonder, you know, I, I, I wonder about the, the, the idea of putting something in the water, not, not, not necessarily for the leaders, but for all of us to make us more empathetic, to make us more, more something. It would just be, and, and of course, there's a moral question there, but that, that I'm not suggesting. Well, that. it's, I mean, one, it's really hard to be empathetic when you're terrified, right? Because it yeah. shuts down those options. Absolutely. Um, right. First and foremost. So um, there is some level of a social justice component. And, I, and like, let's, let's be clear, whether or not we agree or disagree, they're terrified on the far right, just as they're terrified, right? Like, it's oh, the absolutely. same, it's the same fear. Yes. These are the same, you know, this, the same fears, you're just having different reactions to them. And um, again, I like our, I, I've always liked our chances. Like, I think the pendulum goes back and forth. I think the only thing that's different today, and I think this is a good thing, not a bad thing, is everything's more visible today. And that's right. So we, we can see it. I don't think there's more hatred in the world, more tribalism. Like I actually would argue there's probably a lot less, right? Because the, the great thing about the internet, the great thing about television, the great thing about all this stuff is it puts the other in your living room. Yes. Right. Like not that threatening if it's in your living room. And we see this all, like, you know, the interesting thing I always say this about the internet is the internet made subculture visible. When I was growing up as a punk rocker in Cleveland, Ohio, right? I remember people used to rip my earrings out of my ear, right? Because they had never seen a Mohawk before. They'd never seen men with earrings. And, you know, it was totally violent. And I was the only punk rocker around for a long stretch of miles, <laughs> right? And today, like, you know, if you're a scared, gay, teenager in Pakistan 25 years ago your chances like you had a real problem sure. now you've actually can find get online use your smartphone find people just like you you've got a fighting chance that you didn't have right the internet made subculture visible and it you know nobody's as alone as they used to be um and so that's cool and so I like our chances in the end is all I'm saying on that one yeah but that's actually a really good point, and I think that we are we are i I believe in human beings more than anything, and I think that we are actually better than we think we are you know um I think we can do better, but I think we are better than we actually believe that we are and and it's easy to to forget that sometimes that that's what we are. Are you ready to jump into the mastication round? <laughs> This is called Curiosity Bites, so we call it a mastication round because it's where you get to have a quick chew on a couple of random questions. I was going for a chew pun. I couldn't come up with one. 
<laughs> I was Chewbacca. I, I that, okay. yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I didn't. I was I was working. I was trying to work with you on the mastication thing. Okay, so you get to pick. Uh, you know, know what? I grew up. My mother told me if I did that, I'd go blind. Really? <laughs> I don't think it was mastication. You sure? You sure? <laughs> Um, so you get to pick a random number between 1 and 20, and I'll read that random question to you. 19. 19. Number 19. The most important apology you ever gave. What's the most important apology you ever gave? Jesus. There are, I don't know. I mean, the most important apology I ever gave has got to be an apology I gave to my wife. Um, I, I would argue over the, year, over the years, right? Because that's just the nature of a long relationship. Um, maybe my best friend. There was, um, I will say that... Um, I don't have a lot of regrets. And, and if I do, they're mostly along the lines of, um, there were two fantastic opportunities at once and I had to say no to one of them, right? So didn't, and, the, and, they, and the, that door would close forever. So there were a couple of those, but there was also, um, do you remember earlier we talked about having a truth filter? Yes. Okay. So I have a different truth filter than most magazine journalists and I'll tell you why. So years ago in the 90s, I wrote one of the very first big major science articles for Discover Magazine on the neuroscience of mystical experiences. What goes on in the brain when we have out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, trance states, that sort of stuff. You're very fascinated by it. And I um, discovered even in the 90s, at the front end of it, there was a ton of research. I mean, we knew a lot more. And I always, I thought to myself, wow, this is amazing. Like, these are crazy experiences, the weirdest experiences in history. And it turns out we understand where out-of-body experiences come from in the brain. We know why people speak in tongues like this. Like, these mysteries have sort of been solved. And I was fascinated by why didn't more people know about this? So I asked my main source, a big scientist, and he said, oh, these two researchers, they wrote best-selling books about the neuroscience of out-of-body and near-death experiences. They became bestsellers, and they're not really scientists. These guys were more like spiritual charlatan, new age dudes. They shouldn't have, they should have done it, and that's what happened. And I did what a journalist does. I went out and I asked three other sources, and they said, oh yeah, these two researchers wrote these best-selling books and blah, blah. So I published it. And it turns out all four people gave me the same wrong name. There were two scientists who wrote best-selling, super popular books. That's what happened. They all gave me the wrong name, same wrong name. And I didn't bother to do enough research, published it. My fact checker at the magazine didn't go any deeper because I had three confirmed sources on the record. And we slighted a guy who ended up becoming 
sort of one of my heroes in science. Um, but I, I slighted him very, very badly in print. And, um, you know, I published a retraction afterwards, an apology and all that stuff, but it doesn't matter. The damage was, you know what I mean? The damage was done. And um, while I apologize to him for that one, um, he's probably still pissed and rightly so. Wow, that's, wow, that, that's, that's, that, I mean, I really like your truth filter. Um, yeah, what I discovered, I, it's a funny thing, by the way, I discovered after that, because I started asking five people. That was my rule. I was like, okay. And the reason it became five, I actually went all over the place to try. What I discovered is that, and I don't know why this is, Stephen's rule of thumb, but if you ask four people the same question, you can often get the same answer. It's because ideas have trends, because often as a journalist, you often say to the person you're talking to, hey, who else should I talk to about this subject? And they're gonna kick you to their friend, right? Often I found if you ask a fifth person, they will give you some answer that totally reverses everything the previous four have said. And then you have to go ask five more, right? So I found that five is always a good number because if five people tell you the same fact, it's probably solid because otherwise it, it'll, I've noticed that you'll all, you'll usually get a reversal. So that became my truth filter. So I always say, if I say it in one of my books or one of my articles or a blog for that matter, unless I say, this is my humble opinion kind of thing, mm -hmm. I've got five sources for pretty much everything, or I try to have five, as close to five sources as I can. That's, that, that is fascinating because uh, again, you know, the, back to our bias and, and, and you know, as you said who else should I talk about to about this they're probably going to tell you somebody who agrees with them you know we used to yeah, my wife and I taught a relationship program for many years and one of the questions we were asking that is why did your last relationship break up and the person would answer that and I'd say now I want you to imagine that I get to walk into a bar or a coffee shop or whatever it is and I get to meet your ex and I say to them why did your relationship break up what would their answer be and it's amazing to watch what people would go, oh, they would say it's this. <laughs> so, you know, well, if it isn't exactly what you said, and, it's, uh, and it isn't exactly what they said, what is it? And it's, of course, it's something in the middle. So well, you've uh, had those, I mean, you've had those marriages and families are great for those fights. We're like, you're literally having a fight and you're like, oh my God, we are looking at the exact same piece of information and reading it, it means totally different things right and like you and suddenly like suddenly facts are no longer facts you're like how is this even possible yeah. right and that happens that's 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 family right that's just that's why we're you know i i think my marriage is one of the greatest accomplishments of my life and i think you probably say the same thing Absolutely. they're hard they're really hard to do well yeah i i think that that is the great understatement because I think that the most challenging relationship of my life is my relationship with my wife. The most loving, fulfilling, expansive relationship of my life is the relationship with my wife. It challenges me at every possible level. Um, because of my psychology background, I know that nothing is showing up that isn't reflecting some part of me. <laughs> and often a part I don't particularly like. Uh, and often it's reflecting a part of me that I've lost touch with that is magnificent. And it's just relationship 
is is the I, I've said for years relationship like intimate deep intimate relationship is everyday therapy that's what it is it's everyday therapy every day I'm confronted by the things I love most about myself and the things I dislike most about myself and and to come to terms with that is what makes me grow I, I remember I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, uh, one of the guys uh, who I work with at the Flow Research Collective, and to, like four days ago, and I, and I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm, I'm attending the world's greatest personal growth workshop ever. I call it Time with Mom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, I've, I, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> Have you ever, did you ever see the, uh, the, the Albert Brooks movie, Mother? Mm -mm. Oh, you, Stephen, you have to see this movie. You have, you will love it based on what we just talked about. Because uh, do you like Albert Brooks? He's a funny guy. Yeah. yeah. So Albert Brooks, the character in the movie has gone through his second or third divorce and he's sitting with his mate in a bar and he's like, there's got to be something common there. So he's makes it to him, well, what do they all have in common? And he goes through that and, you know, it's, it's Albert Brooks humor. It's very dry and it's funny. And eventually he realizes, oh my God, there's a common theme. And he realizes it's his mother. So he moves back to San Francisco and moves in with his mother to find out. And he puts his room back together the way it was when he was a teenager to find out what went on and how he keeps attracting these women who don't support him. Oh, that's really funny. And it is hysterical. And Debbie Reynolds, who is absolutely brilliant, plays his mom. And it is so funny, but it's so deeply insightful. We used to show it in our workshops because it's like, oh, my God, this is, this is what we do. And at one point, he's like, oh, my God, she hates me. I get it. She hates me. And he's saying this to his own mother. She hates me but he gets what has driven every relationship. And we, and this, you know, for me, that's part of my fascination in the work that I do is finding the primary drivers of human beings, because we're not driven by what we think we're driven by. We're driven by these deep, impactful psychological imprints that took place around love and the people that we love and how we love them and how we loved and how we perceive ourselves to be loved and that we're driving our entire lives based on filling that hole, based on trying to heal something that is ancient for us. For me, that is the most fascinating thing. And that there are two forces. One is to heal that, and the other one is to expand into who we can become in our greatest possible, um, what I call our dragon, to become the full-blown fire-breathing dragon that we actually are. So, Well, you know, I mean, there's, there's – there's a shit ton of history there is my point is, you know, if you go through, I mean, Freud is the one who's most famous for this, but mm. Nietzsche, all the early high performance thinkers, Nietzsche, James, Young, Freud, like all these guys, right? Um, and don't kid yourself, they were, you know, they were all concerned with high performance in a sense. And they all said the same thing. Mommy and culture weigh a lot. <laughs> right like flat out all of them said mommy and culture weigh a lot and they said you got to deal with both before you can get to anywhere in peak performance right now let's be clear that since those gentlemen were doing their work 
cultures changed a lot. We've had globalization, we've had modernization, we've had social justice movements, we've had, it's not quite as bad as it was say in Victorian England, no. right? Not, it, it's a little different. That said, and we, you know, I, we talked about that a lot in Stealing Fire on how our, you know, our definition of, of who you can be as a person, as an individual has massively expanded in the past 50, 60 years, right? We can fill a lot more space than we were allowed back in the man of, than the gray flannel suit era, right? So that's interesting and that's, that's positive. But the truth of the matter is they're not freaking wrong. Mommy and culture weigh a lot. Yeah. And you got to get through that you, you, one way or another, right? You have to, you have to make your bargain with that. In fact, so you were talking about this earlier and when you about, when you were talking about anxiety and, and this is where it gets super interesting to me, which is so in flow, we know flow states have triggers that we talked about this last time it was on, on the program. And yeah. the most, the classic one is the challenge skills balance. Yep. Flow follows focus, right? We pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set, right? Now, psychologists, since Chick Set Me High did the foundational work on that back in the 70s and 80s, have been asking the question, well, what the fuck do you mean by challenge and what the fuck do you mean by skills? Like, what are those things? Yes. Right? And a lot of work has gone into it and, and depending on whose version of the truth you go for, there's like six to eight to nine different factors that we mean by challenge and skills. One of which is culture, right? Like how a ch challenging a challenge is part of our relationship to it depends on our culture, right? And our upbringing and our parenting and all that stuff. So, Part of the mystery of the challenge skills balance is you have to constantly negotiate with your history and your culture and your past to get it right. Um, now, maybe you can get past that, right? And, you know, as an action sport athlete, right? Like you have to, A, you got to get past the like, um, I had a very overprotective Jewish mother, righteous Jewish mother, very overprotective, right? And I know nothing about what you're talking about. I know that. I know that. So <laughs> my point is that, like, there's a risk tolerance, right? Like, blah, blah, blah. So, like, you know, there's that. And then there's the amount of money I was actually spending on hospital bills along the way. And, you know, both of those together are sort of the way to culture that I had to get past um, in weird ways, right? It comes together to mean really funny things by challenging skills. Yeah, but, you know, the... What ties to that for me is uh, one of my statements is that courage is subjective. And that that is the culture of family, it is the culture of culture. Um, but, you know, certain things that look very easy to me, for me to do, that would look very hard to someone else, and things that they do that look very hard to me are very easy for them. But again, it's that cultural thing. It takes no courage for a girl born in New York City to walk down the street in a miniskirt. But if, she's in, if she was a girl born in Karachi and she wants to wear that miniskirt, that would take enormous amounts of courage. Exactly. And so there are things that we just sort of take for granted um, that we don't think of as courageous. But as you said, that mummy and culture piece, you know, that family of origin and then the culture we live in, you know, you were talking before about... Um, about collective flow with dogs, right? And being in that, 
but you know, if we go back to the work of uh, Rupert Sheldrake and, and, and uh, resonance fields, you know, these collective fields of, of, of thinking and collective fields of ideas, does that tie in for you or is that? No, I don't, I mean, I, I, Rupert Sheldrake is not somebody whose work I know what to do with. Um, I think he did some very interesting research and has, I think he did what a lot of scientists try to do. They tried to colonize territory. He tried to come up with his own language and, and a whole bunch of stuff. And I've just not like, I, it does not meet my burden of proof. Mm. Um, and um, in a way that makes me comfortable completely. And I, and I, and ultimately I don't, you know, I don't know what to do with it. And I will also tell you, I tried to rerun his experiments with our pack of dogs and saw none of it. Right. Like I, ha I, I like we live with a huge pack of dogs. We get very natural, be naturalistic behavior that you don't see elsewhere. I thought, OK, my wife goes out every day. I have 40 dogs to watch, you know, and I can see who you know what I mean? Who's perking up when she and you, I don't don't see it. Don't see it when she leaves with to go on a hike in the morning with a bunch of the dogs and there's a bunch of dogs waiting for her and the other dogs to come home. Didn't, so I like, I, I don't trust his truth filter exactly. And I, I tried to repeat it with my own pack, saw none of it. So that's where I'm left with it. Cause he did do animal experiments too. He did. A lot of that he stuff. Did. No, yeah. He did. I just don't, I, 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 I tend to, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of smoke there. I don't know if there's any fire, mm. right? Uh, I always, I, what, I, what I'd say to people when we get into things like these questions about the, these, kinds of, these, kinds of, these kinds of questions is, you know, neuroscience has gone looking for a lot of mystical phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And as a general rule, we find science there, right? Um, and the places we don't find science, telepathy, morphic fields, energy. The energy is this great, everybody uses this term energy or chi or kundalini or what, right? It's everywhere and yet it's nowhere. We've never been able to find it, nowhere we look. And there's one or two ways to go with that, which is one, maybe our measurement technology is not robust enough, totally right. valid absolutely valid that happens all the time right um or it's just not there and i always say we have found an awful lot of stuff that wasn't supposed to be there we have we're gonna find stuff that is just not there it's just stuff we really want it to be there but it's not really there and i don't know where those lines are but i just you know as a science curmudgeon have to point things out like that yeah for me i'm I, I, I am fascinated with finding what is not, uh, you know, for me, I mean, the, descri the description I've always given is, is if, if we look at the scientific knowledge uh, back a hundred years ago, the circle's this big, right? It's this big and how big is it today? No. I mean, yes and no. I always point this out to people. Nietzsche laid out a four-step blueprint for peak performance. William James expanded it into about seven steps. There is nothing, nothing 
I'm one of the world's leading experts on the topic, and I can tell you there's nothing I'm training people in that Nietzsche and James were not thinking about 100 years ago. We've gotten better and more precise at some of this stuff, right? And Nietzsche took most of his ideas from pre-Socratic Greeks. So, <laughs> my, right? So yes and no is my point on that one. Um, on a certain level, there's nothing new under the sun. On a certain level, everything's new under the sun. And I'm hesitant about that. Yes, you're right. But it's also, we had some pretty good instincts. Um, oh, absolutely. But, but the, there are things- Now, if you went back 500 today. years ago, I'm screwed. I